And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. As always, that, that, how come I can't do this? That's Adam Lippy over there, the, the beautiful, lovely, and talented Adam Lippy. And tonight is the last Wednesday of the month, which means it's movie night. And tonight we will be looking at two films, uh, Drive and... Uh, Universal Soldier for blah 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 is the title of the that one. And yeah, I believe that's. I believe Universal Soldier blah 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 is correct. <laughs> okay. Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Okay. Uh, my my take on on these movies, and I'll I'll start off on a, a great note here. Um, I think I could have watched Ford Fairlane three times in the time it took me to watch both of these movies and enjoyed it a lot more. But you, in that amount of time, you would have watched no good movies. So you have that problem. That, that that's true. But uh, I would have enjoyed it immensely. So uh, I, I, I guess uh, maybe, maybe this is a mostly solo show. But I'll, I'll engage you as I. <laughs> I'll, I'll come along for the ride. I'll come okay. along. For, I didn't uh, enjoy aspects of both movies, and there were there were moments of each where I I chuckled, and, and you know the wherever there was slight bits of humor. Most more so in Drive than Universal. Yeah, there's Soldier. more humor in Drive, certainly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I, I like that. And the other one had, uh, and I'll just say this right from the start, had a, at times, video-esque, uh, a video game-esque quality about it, Universal. So especially in some of the scenes, they have made, made it feel almost like it was a simulation or video game simulation or, or uh, one of one of the games you watch somebody on Twitch right now, and we're on Twitch, but somebody's on playing some violent game that looks a lot like that. <laughs> uh, I, I could see the video game angle, and I'm going to get into a little bit of that, that later. But tonight we're covering Drive from 1997, not the 2011 version with Ryan Gosling. This is 1997 with Mark Dacascos and Kadeem Hardison. Um it is being released on Blu-ray for the first time in the uncut version uh, in a couple of weeks from MVD Entertainment. Um, and it's uh, never been released uncut in the U.S. Uh, the clips I sent Matt come from my PAL DVD that I bought 20 years ago in England. Wow. Um, and uh, when it came out in America, uh, it was cut and um, by about 20 minutes and rescored and uh, cropped and then dumped to HBO. And so... What I want to talk about tonight are two movies that I think should have caused these uh, the stars of the film, Scott Adkins and Mark Dacascos, Scott Adkins of uh, Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, to become like big action stars because they're both you know great athletes, charming, good looking, charisma, you know all the things that would be necessary, and it never happened for them for various reasons. Um, and I, I wanted to get into why that is. Um, I think that they, what's that. Why? <laughs> we, we want the answer. You brought it up. We, well, I, that's, yeah. That's we're all curious now. <laughs> sure, sure. So I think to understand that, you have to break down the development of martial arts films in America. Um, obviously, this would be very long if I went into you know, Asian films because they're covered in it. Um, so I just wanted to, uh, and even if longer, if I like broke down which martial arts we're talking about because there's so many different kinds. 
Um, but I just wanted to, you know, let's start with like perhaps just the co-opting of culture. Uh, uh, the most notable early example is a James Cagney movie from 1945 called Blood on the Sun. Um, basically what happened is James Cagney's brother had read about a, a dojo being run by a policeman. Uh, so he hired the policeman who had, uh, who retired from the force. His name was Jack Sergel to teach him judo and play the villain in the movie in, in Yellowface, who fights him in the in the uh, um, conclusion of the film. Now, I know saying, oh, we start, it's in yellow face, you know, makes this racist, blah, blah, blah. At the time, the all the Japanese were in internment camps. Um, and this guy trained with them while they were in internment camps and got investigated by the police himself while he was still a cop. And that's why he retired and took a pseudonym and just became this different guy for the remainder of his career and did stunts and all that stuff. So I will give him a pass on being in yellow face because there's a fascinating NPR story about this guy Holy um, crap! Uh, about how he was um, still training with some of the Japanese who were still in internment camps at the time and how they tried to, you know, make it look like he was collaborating in some sort. So, um, uh, and, and at the time there were no Japanese people in America who were allowed to run dojo. So there weren't a lot of options here. So uh, James Cagney's brother brought him, brought him, brought it to him. And so, if you could play that clip uh, from uh, Blood on the Sun, Japanese this is what it. Yeah, so that's the cop. You can see how slow this is. All right, I think that's all you use. But you get yeah. the idea. Is that the more realistic fight you were talking about? No. I mean, I guess it's <laughs> well, I guess at the time they didn't know about punches and kicks and stuff, and it was all flips and, and a smack or two. Here well, but but you've got to differentiate, you know, what the barroom brawl type of fight you would see in every kind of movie. You know, not just Clint Eastwood things, but that's what that's what most fighting look like in movies. This is really the first time in an American movie you see, this was judo, any kind of martial art, you know, in the film. Right. Um, and obviously it looks slow and sloppy and, you know, Cagney, cause he's the hero wins the fight, even though obviously he would stand no shot in reality whatsoever. Um, and you know, you have that, you know, imbalance. Um, but there's not, because there's no representation for, in, in, for no Asians in films, you still had like white people playing Asians, not just, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, even for 20 years, you still, for, you had uh, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's, you had Marlon Brando in the Tea House of the August Moon, and it was just a constant problem. So you, so even when they finally do more martial arts, and it happens a couple of times, the most famous example is, um, uh, you know, well, it, is, is, is the Manchurian Candidate, but I'll, I'll lead into that a little. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not going to blame the lack of progression uh, uh, of martial arts and films because there was no representation because you only had this 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 thing so there'd be you know a Kurosawa would release a film like uh, Yojimbo or The Seven Samurai uh, or The Hidden Fortress and then when they get remade in America they'd either be guns or lasers right because you have Fistful of Dollars you have The Magnificent Seven and you have Star Wars right that's so they they're not even retaining the samurai nature of these films 
So there's just no even attempt to do it. So, um, and, and then anytime agents would be in it, they'd either be embarrassed or they'd have non-speaking roles or whatever it was. So finally, when you have something in a like in in, in the Manchurian Candidate, which is a very serious thriller, um, anybody who hasn't seen the Manchurian Candidate, a it's a great movie. Have you seen it, Matt? Yeah, of course. I, I love um, the I love the original. I'm not I'm not very fond. Yeah, you know, out of everything uh, Denzel Washington was ever in, uh, <laughs> that's the one I don't like. Uh, the remake of uh, uh, t Taking a Pelham One Two Three is considerably oh. worse. That's a yeah. lot worse. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but so let's let's play that clip of the Manchuria Candidate. So this is like nearly twenty years after the James Cagney thing. That's Frank Sinatra. He's going to get into a fight with Henry Silva playing someone who's Asian, even though Henry Silva is very right, much yeah. not Asian. It, it totally doesn't look Asian either. So it starts as a ballroom brawl, and then we get into we'll get into a little bit more. What was Raymond doing with his hands? See, that's pretty realistic. Sure. <laughs> How did the old lady turn into Russian? <laughs> that's not. <laughs> no. That wasn't even Frank Sinatra. That was a stunt guy. Oh, probably, yeah. As, as, as you're laughing, I think you're correct. I think that's uh, uh, the one real poor portion of that film. Uh, it's uh, pretty distracting. It's goofy as hell. There's, uh, there's just no way around the issues there. Um, so there's not really any um, martial arts uh, in, in, any, in any serious way in movies for years because all you have, what is a Cato in the Pink Panther movies? Um, right. And that's just really slapstick. And if you want to watch a, a montage of Cato scenes that, that's on YouTube, someone's cut together basically 25 minutes of them. Uh, but, you know, it's basically a guy uh, interrupts uh, Clouseau at various moments, you know, whether he's having sex or whether he's, you know, doing whatever. And, and, and then, you know, they get into a slapstick fight. And that's pretty much it for 10 years other than some, some Matt Helm films where Bruce Lee was uh, uh, a uh, fight trainer, and, uh, and wrecking, wrecking crew. And like Flint, in like Flint, I was thinking yeah. about it today. Uh, and I, I think Coburn was a, a real student of karate, or, or you know, uh, the original karate. Yep. Uh, so I think that was pretty convincing, as I remember it. But I couldn't find the clips today to actually see what he looked like doing. But that. It, but it's not in really any serious way, and I and I right. think you don't really have like a serious attempt at martial arts because the in like Flint movies are comedies; they're parodies of the James Bond right. stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. And the next movie is really 1971's Billy Jack, um, which uh, whenever I try to describe the movie Billy Jack to anybody, they think I'm making it up. 
Um, but, but if anybody doesn't know, it's one of the most successful independent movies ever. It was the second biggest movie of its year behind like Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and it's a, an independent film starring a white dude playing a half Native American who runs a Montessori school who, you know, there's all sorts of violence. And in order to teach the white man, you know, something, he just beats them all up. And there's, you know, lots of violence and raping and stuff. And, and he's not and, even really half Indian, is he? No, he's not. No, he's just a white dude. Um, and, uh, and and a big obvious influence on Steven Seagal because On Deadly Ground might as well be a remake of Billy Jack. Right. Uh, it's the only movie that Seagal directed, and it's the same concept of uh, he wants to bring peace to people by blowing up an oil rig, and you know because that's good for the pollution problem in Alaska, and he's going to save the Eskimos, etc. So uh, uh, the same sanctimony, too, that was in Billy Jack. Billy Jack, if you watch it now, is bewildering. Um, and uh, it had several sequels, uh, one of which was even successful. But after Billy Jack, you finally had a breakthrough, and that's Bruce Lee. Uh, but what people don't remember is that Bruce Lee didn't become a big deal until he was already dead. Um, because Enter the Dragon comes out in 1973, several months after he's already dead. And the previous movies he'd made, like Fist of Fury um, and Return of the Dragon, uh, were either made directly for the Hong Kong audiences by Chinese filmmakers or released after Enter the Dragon. And the fact that Bruce Lee died is a factor because he was basically James Deanified, you know, if you think about it. Like, guy makes four movies, suddenly he's the biggest thing in the world. When, you know, would Enter the Dragon have made as much a splash had he not died? Who knows? I mean... I wasn't. Did you see it when it came out? Because obviously I didn't, because it's older than me. I saw it, but I never really watched it. That was one of the movies that was on in our drive-in, and we went in for free. So I never really. I, I paid attention to the fight scenes. Never really watched the movie for anything about plot or any of that stuff. We would, you know, we snuck into a drive-in. I yes, to, to answer your question, I saw it two hundred times. Did I ever see the movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, I'm not going to argue that, that Ender Dragon is a great movie in plot standards. I mean, it has this weird distinction that the director was deaf, um, continued to make movies for years. You would think that would be a hindrance, yeah. but it wasn't for Robert Klaus. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was huge because – and then every, all these things spring out of it, but not really any movie stars spring out of it because you have some black exploitation ripoffs because Jim Kelly's in Under the Dragon, and so he's in Black Belt Jones. He has a couple other movies. Dolomite has some kung fu in it, but it's done in a parody fashion. It's done in just kind of a goofy, goofy way. Um, and there's not really any substantial movement of the martial arts movie, and at least in America, um, until the late 70s when Chuck Norris starts making movies. Now, Chuck Norris had fought uh, Bruce Lee in, um, I think it's called either Way of the Dragon or Return of the Dragon or whatever you want to call it. Um, and he starred in a movie called Breaker Breaker, which is indeed what it sounds like, which is a CB radio uh, martial arts movie. It's not <laughs> great, um, but he couldn't get uh, studio financing because the next movie, Good, Good Guys Wear Black, which was also a hit like Breaker Breaker, could, still couldn't get studio financing for several years until he did a movie. Um, what's that one? Um, uh, Silent Rage which is a serial killer movie, which also has some martial arts in it. I don't um, remember that one. But that's the first studio movie he did, and that's like 82. And meanwhile, he'd been doing movies for like four or five years. And um, there are attempts by other people to break through, like Jackie Chan. Um, Battle, Creek, Battle Creek Brawl comes out in 1980, um, and that doesn't succeed. Um, and then Cannibal Run, in uh, which is financed by a Hong Kong studio, is actually marketed in Hong Kong as a Jackie Chan vehicle. 
even though his role is fairly small and it's obviously a vehicle for Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, and every other person who ever knew the Rat Pack, basically. Um, (laughs) So Jackie Chan doesn't break through until 1996, which is nearly 20 years after his first attempt, um, because in 1985, they try something else with some movie called The Protector, but they take the movie away from Jackie Chan. They recut it. They they make it filled with more violence and nudity than normally he would he would uh, put in the film and uh, and that doesn't work in 95. So he doesn't break through until rumble in the Bronx in 96. And then what happens is cause it's right over around the time of the, the takeover of uh, uh, Hong Kong by the Chinese, there's this big shift in the industry anyway, because all these Asian actors and directors are coming over. So the first handful of uh, Jackie Chan movies um, that new line buys besides rumble in the Bronx are just dubbed and cut versions of his Hong Kong films like super right. cop, like first strike, all that stuff. Um, but you still don't have this kind of breakthrough American star because they want to make it a white person. Um, Wait, but, I got a question. Yeah, go ahead. For, uh, now it probably has nothing to do with film, but culturally, yeah, you're talking about how long it took for all these Asians to break through. Mm-hmm. Um, culturally, why did we have the perception when I was growing up in the early sixties, that any every, every any and every Asian person knew kung fu, karate, and were, were black belt and and uh, were incredible at martial arts. Where did that come from? If we never saw any real Asians, <laughs> well, maybe you saw some Asian films, or maybe you watched a lot of. Because in the seventies, what you had was, and I skipped over a little bit, but you had Bruce Lee uh, was such a big deal that there was a whole there's a whole genre called Bruce exploitation. Which is just movies starring guys named Bruce Lee L E or Bruce Lai L I, <laughs> and then the, all the ripoffs, and in every country in the world had their versions of it. So the perception would be that because you're getting all the kung fu movies on TV at that point, and they're they're dubbing them and they're cutting, them. and and so I guess the assumption is they must all know kung fu, yeah. and then maybe maybe you get a movie like um, uh, Thirty Six Chamber of the Shaolin, which is the best training movie ever made. Um, which is, came out in 78, which is obviously influential on the Wu-Tang Clan. But if you get a chance to see it, it's great. Watch the subtitle version. I think one of them, on either on Netflix or Amazon, one version stuff, just watch the subtitle version. It's, it's a fantastic movie. Um, but th- So I would assume that since anything that was playing on TV or anything that was um, playing uh, you know, uh, in a theater that was foreign, that, that would, might give you the idea that everybody knew. I mean, sure, it's already part of their culture to learn some sort of martial art. But right. you wouldn't necessarily know that as an American. Yeah. Um, I remember I being like at. 13 years old and being on a bus with an Asian friend, and uh, got a bunch of guys wanted to start a fight with me. Didn't know uh, my friend uh, who was with me at the time. And so they were ready to kick my ass. Like four guys wanted to kick my ass. And all he had to do was stand up, and he didn't know anything. <laughs> he didn't know how to fight that for, for anything in his life. Didn't know any martial arts. But they all kind of went, oh, wait a minute. Don't fuck with that guy. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's there's movies that, that go along with that theory. If you've ever seen uh, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, the premise is that everyone who's Asian knows some yeah, martial yeah, art. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of half a parody and half offensive. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a movie I enjoy very much, but I'm not going to pretend <laughs> pretend that it isn't insensitive. Yeah. Uh, it has, it has my, one of my favorite moments in all of cinema in it, which is uh, Egg Shen, who's leading driving around on a bus. He somehow gets up this ladder and Kurt Russell looks at him and goes, how'd you get up there? And he goes, it wasn't easy. And then they never <laughs> explain it. <laughs> My favorite hand wave away of a plot problem. <laughs> okay, let's just move on. Um, sorry, something fell on my headphones here. Um, 
So uh, by the time that Chuck Norris is making his splash, that's kind of when you enter the Canon Films point. Now, I don't know if you know who Canon and or Golden Globus are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they made Enter the Ninja, which is a white dude karate movie, because Franco Nero is the star of that. But really, the key to that is the villain is played by Shokushugi, who would then make several other ninja movies for canon, like Nine Deaths of Ninja and Ninja 3, The Domination. And there was a whole series of ninja movies after that. But it never really caught on in sort of in the mainstream. It's just kind of small. You'd have like little bits here and there of fads, like The Karate Kid and obviously Big Trouble in Little China, uh, or um, uh, what's the one that Barry Gordy made, The Last Dragon? Which was basically, which was basically, like, you know, what if, what if, uh, you know, one of these kung fu movies were, were starred black people, essentially. But they <laughs> never, it never, like, you never had a star come out of any of that. Kashugi was close, but it never, it never quite happened for him. Chuck Norris eventually did start making movies for canon after that, but they were more like shoot 'em ups, like like the Delta Force and stuff like that, or Missing in Action. So they were, they were more, there was less martial arts more more guns and shooting so i wouldn't really categorize those so much as martial arts movies but i think the key what's funny is uh canon also made break in which is a breakdance movie and in break in is a lucinda dickey who then starred in uh, ninja 3 the domination with shokushugi and it's like this mix of exorcist movie breakdancing <laughs> movie and kung F and ninja movie it's a, a fascinating bad film but it's a lot of fun so you know you want to have a good time it's it's there but Van Damme uh, was also in Breakin. Jean-Claude Van Damme has a small role in Breakin. And then he starts a relationship with Canon, which then moves into them uh, producing Kickboxer, Bloodsport, and Cyborg. Um, Steven Seagal shows up around the late 80s as well. Um, uh, and, you know, basically, I don't know if you know the Steven Seagal origin story. Uh, Mike Ovitz, who was the most powerful man in Hollywood at the time, the head of CAA, the agency, Creative Arts Agency, decided that he he could uh, make a movie star just on his own. So he hired his uh, uh, Aikido teacher, Steven Seagal, to make a movie and write his own script. And that's what Above the Law is. Um, wow. And so Steven Seagal's career is entirely because uh, Mike Ovitz is arrogant. Um, wow. And, <laughs> and Steven Seagal started a career. And then after that happens, you know, Steven Seagal makes a number of films for Warner Brothers. These are studio films. And they're hits. And then everyone goes, oh, we got we can just get a white guy athlete and let's let's make our own martial arts movie. So you get Thomas Ian Griffith in Excessive Force. You get Jeff Speakman in The Perfect Weapon, which is let's surround the white dude with a bunch of name Asian actors um, and, and, and just put him in Chinatown. And that'll give him the street credibility he needs. Um, so when you if you watch The Perfect Weapon and it's a cheesy early 90s action movie, uh, you'll see, you know, Professor Tanaka. You'll see uh, Mako. You'll see the dude who played the villain in Showdown in Little Tokyo. You'll see um, what's the good uh, James Hong, who's in who I think is I think James Hong's still alive somehow. Um, if you know who that is, he's the butler in Chinatown. Yeah, he's yeah. he's he's, uh, he's the villain in Big Trouble in Little China. I'd have to look up whether he's still alive, but he might well might as well be 120. But that's what you would do <laughs> is you'd you'd surround these white dudes with a bunch of Asian actors, put them in Chinatown, and that was like that was how you did that. Um, and, you know, none of them really hit. I mean, there was uh, Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren in Showdown in Little Tokyo, same kind of concept. Um, and, uh, you know, you had one exception, non-white exception, which is Wesley Snipes um, uh, with uh, uh, Passenger 57 and Boiling Point and, um, I mean, eventually Demolition Man, um, uh, but uh, Rising Sun, where he's doing martial arts. I mean, it's a mix of guns and martial arts, but it's still essentially... And then eventually, you know, he gets his own project many years later, Blade, which is a martial arts movie mixed with a vampire movie. 
Um, uh, let's see. Um, and I guess you can include like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles if you want in that. But I don't, again, that's not really like a breakout star. That's like a concept. Um, but all of that is like how I kind of got interested in Mark DeCascos because like that he was an attempt to do the same thing. Like he'd been in a movie in the early 80s that he was actually cut from called uh, Dim Sum, which is a Wayne Wang movie who later made um, Smoke and The Joy of Luck Club. Um, yes, always bet on black. Correct. Um uh, I don't know if you know, Passenger 57 was originally written for uh, uh, Clint Eastwood. And, wow. Um, I didn't and know that. they changed the location of where I think it was going to take place in South Africa. Um, there was an interview with the writer of it, uh, Stuart uh, Raphael, and you can read about that on, I think, Slash Film, where he was talking about how he'd written that movie originally and totally for some other project. Um, so he, Wayne Wang uh, hires DeCascos in like 1981 or 82 when he's about 18 or 19 years old. Um, but they cut they cut the cascos from the film, and then uh, he uh, he then goes into training to become a monk um, because he's fascinated by the Jet Li movie, which is called Let me find it here. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm looking. I have I have it on, on a list, but he, he there's a, there's a yeah the Jet Li vehicle, the Shaolin Temple. Um, so he 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 trains for years and years and years. What's that? The part, the other part about that that we kind of skipped over the television influence, of course, in the seventies was uh, Kung Fu with David Carradine. Which but is he was another a, white, another white guy yeah. playing a half Chinese guy, right? <laughs> and it's and that was originally a Bruce Lee project that they just wouldn't put on TV. Oh, really? Uh, I yeah, thought it was. I thought David Carradine uh, was was like executive producer or something. I mean, right? eventually, I mean, by the time that comes out, I think Bruce Lee's dead. But that, but Bruce Lee, that was his idea, and he tried to get it on TV. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, what was I saying? Oh, okay. So, uh, DeCascos, um, uh, his parents were like people who they trained martial artists. They were like tournament guys. They were like hard edged and he wanted to become a monk to sort of be part of the training, but also, uh, I guess I, I'd say sort of get away from them. He's born in Hawaii, eventually moved to Germany where a lot of this, this happened. I think he spent his childhood in Hamburg. Um, uh, uh, so, in the early nineties, he finally gets hired to do a martial arts movie. Uh, it's called American Samurai. It's forgettable. It doesn't matter. Um, but he, at the same time that he does this movie, he's in training for capo for in capoeira, which is a fascinating Brazilian martial art. That's like half dancing, half martial art. Um, and right at the same time, there's a project for, I think it's Fox called only the strong. That's a capoeira martial arts movie. And he auditions for it and gets the movie because he's just trained in capoeira for Sheldon Ledich, who later uh, works with and had already worked with a ton of Van, had done a ton of work with Van Damme, um, like writing Bloodsport and writing Kickboxer and still worked with Van Damme for years after that. Um, so he um, uh, he stars in Only the Strong and it doesn't it doesn't hit. But like, you know, now he's at like, the zeitgeist. Now he's like, oh, we're going to push this like, this good looking young kid who's an amazing athlete. Right. Who can do his own spin kicks, who can do all this stuff. And um, what happens is that first the first thing he gets is Double Dragon, which is a, a, an adaptation of the video game Double Dragon from in 1994. And that's right in that period uh, where they're just adapting video games <laughs> in, into movies. Which is the weirdest, like there's there's these three movies that come out like in within like months of each other. There's Double Dragon, Street Fighter, and Mortal Kombat. The original right. one, not the one that just came out, the original one. I remember and what's Street weird, Fighter and, and Mortal Kombat, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you double dragon's very bad, and he's he's like the other brother in it. Uh, it's him and Scott Wolf. Um, and it's not you know the fact that it's disappeared is no you know tragedy, but you, I think you can find it on Amazon Prime. Um, but what's weird is they're all adaptations of fighting games into movies, and the fighting games are often based on movies. Um, so it's this weird Ouroboros that never ends that I don't quite understand. <laughs> I mean, Mortal Kombat features Raiden, which is right out of Big Trouble Little China, Johnny Cage, who is obviously based on Jean-Claude Van Damme. And then they adapted that into Mortal Kombat, which is just a ripoff of Enter the Dragon, the same plot, um, you know, plus the mysticism. So it's this whole kind of thing that's this weird function of video games that never particularly makes a lot of sense to me. I know they did that with Tekken too, um, but there's like games based on streets of fire and then they'll adapt that into a movie and just like, well, streets of fire is already a movie. So, you know, what do you, it, it, it's an Ouroboros, as I said, I, I don't particularly understand. Um, so in 90, so the project that comes after double dragon is a movie uh, that he did with Christoph Gans and the producer Samuel Hedita, which is an adaptation of a manga called crying Freeman. And it's a, it's a vehicle for Mark Dacascos. And he's going to be, you know, this is going to be a big deal. It's like a mix of like martial arts and like John Woo gunfights and stuff. And you think this is going to be a big deal. And what happens is the movie is never released in the U.S. at all. In other words, it's it's it wasn't even released streaming until 2018. It's never even been on video or DVD. It's not a great movie, but it's it's fine. Like it's a good shoot 'em up with some decent action. You know, the director later made Brotherhood of the Wolf. He made. Um, What's that video game adaptation? I can't remember at the, the top of my head, uh, the one from in two thousand six. But, um, but it's it's one of the signs like that maybe DeCasco's, uh, you know, is not lucky because you get a project for for yourself, you know, with international co financing, which is always a bad word because if you know what that, do you know what international co financing usually mm -hmm. means? No. If it's international co financing, it means you get lots of lots of people putting in different money, but it often means that there's it's it was pre sold, and so they're in they're they've made money before you shot a frame so they wow. don't care they don't care how it ends they don't as long as there's a product that's all they care about and there's going to be distribution problems because everything is done piecemeal there's going to be distribution problems at one end because they don't have to deal with a studio who has has as much reach there's no there's going to be no consistency and so a, a situation like crying freeman will happen and the same thing happened with drive where it just disappears like the thing is just gone and it doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if there's, oh, I want to see this. you got to get your DVDs from overseas. The thing never plays in the theater. It's just, it just disappears. <laughs> like imagine a movie that's not even bad that in 1995 just doesn't come out. That's uh, of any level of competence when there's plenty of direct-to-video movies. That's wow. so strange. So that's the first time he works with this producer, Samuel Hadida. And I wanted to talk about international co-financing at some point, but like, I realize this is a complex subject and I don't want to bore everybody listening. Uh, <laughs> is this the part where I, where I put in my plug for my film? You can, you can see my film, wait, wait, don't kill me, which I wrote, produced and directed. Uh, was on, that internationally co-financed? Uh, co it was, it was internationally co-financed from my pocket. Yes. Wow. Uh, uh, on Cosm 10% off. If you use the code, don't kill me. Uh, it is a uh, viral pandemic horror comedy. Um, so after Double Dragon and obviously Crying Freeman does not hit because it never comes out, um, you can see the movie, but, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it disappears. That's when Drive comes to him. And um, they get uh, – it, it, it's intended for theatrical release. But when you saw the opening credit, I don't know what you thought. The opening credit for something called Overseas Film Group. I didn't – it didn't even occur to me. When you see a credit like that, it's scary. 
because it's like generic name, generic nothing, right? It's like we put together a collective to finance this movie and we don't really get anytime you see a generic name, it's like, you know, film holding company Inc. presents, you know, that that's that's often some trouble because and it's not that that's not a legitimate company, it is a legitimate company. It's a uh their subsidiary of first look pictures, um, who does put out films, but they're international co-financiers. That's why I mentioned that. Um, and they sell foreign rights. That's that's what they do. Um so they they hire Steve Wang, who is a, a, a mostly a makeup and effects guy, but who's directed um, two. Do you know what a kaiju movie is? No, kaiju is like Godzilla or King. You know, Godzilla vs King Kong, like big monster movies. So okay. he directed these movies called Giver and Giver Two, and they're basically kung fu movies, but they're but they're people in like costumes, right? And they're goofy adaptations of uh, uh, of mangas and comic books and stuff like that, Japanese stuff. And the second one's actually pretty good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I think Mark Hamill's in it, but they're enjoyable. And like, it just gave, oh, here's the pedigree. The other key element actually is that these guys, a lot of these guys worked on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which I know is funny because you're like, that was a kid's show, but it's essentially a martial arts kid's show. Um, do you know Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know what what that is. It may not be for me. It may not be for you. But a lot of these people worked on those sorts of shows because it's still like, how do you find? How do you practice that? How do you get your start in doing these kinds of movies? So this guy Steve Wang had done uh, those kinds of things. He'd done a lot of makeup and effects on bigger budget movies um, for years. But then this was like a big break for him because they're going to give him three million dollars to make this this Kung Fu movie that's, and I think uh, fairly ambitious to make this movie on $3 million. I don't know like what it looks like to you. I think I watch this and I go, I don't know how you got away with this for $3 million, the locations and the elaborate fights and stuff. Um, but um, for those of you who haven't seen drive and I realize I've talked for, well, it was what, a long okay. time ago though, right? So $3 million then was $6 million now or something like that. I mean, so. but still like this is, this is a, a re, uh, this should be a reasonably budgeted, movie and that three million dollars is going to have to go a long way yeah. um so the plot of dacascos a bit of drive with mark dacascos from 1997 i would say it doesn't really matter um it's basically <laughs> just a it's just a it's just a thing to hang some action sequences on you know it's a guy who's uh uh you know running away from some corporate overlords and the henchmen who want to kill him because he's he's like some sort of secret uh, cyborg he's got something in it inside of him and they killed his girlfriend because she was a protester and he wants to sell it to an American company. Um, what's interesting is in the HBO version, they leave all that stuff out about the fact that he had a girlfriend uh, and what his motivation is. And it just makes him and then the co-star, co Kadeem Hardison, look like mercenaries out for money. It, just, it, right. changes, it changes the context entirely. And all the family stuff for Kadeem Hardison is just gone. Well, um, I, I don't know if it's too early to talk about this, but that, that part of the plot was one of the things that turned me off to this movie and that he in very early on Kadeem Hardison says um Kadeem Hardison says um why are they trying to kill me and not you and he says I'm I'm too valuable but then they're like blowing him up and like blowing up buildings he's in like if they would were really trying to save and bring him in alive they're really taking a, a lot of chances with killing him along the way. I mean, really sloppy well, I think, chances. I think by the midpoint, that, that lead villain is so frustrated that he just wants to get rid of him. I think by <laughs> that point. Because initially, in fact, if you want... Um, uh, I, I was OCD on that point, the whole thing. Like, I was not going to let that go. They, you're saying you're too valuable. They're trying to kill you, man. No, they remember they want to shoot him in the legs. Remember there's a yeah, whole thing? Right, shoot, him in the, shoot him in the legs. Right. And so, <laughs> hell, if you want to play that that uh, 
uh, factory fight to get a sense of what we're talking about. This is when it's kind of, the movie's kind of goofy. Uh, drive, factory fight. Drive. So this is the Jackie Chan element of the movie, which is like playing with props and slapstick. Um, okay, here it is. Chicken we ate. Huh? <laughs> Damn, that was good. Them little garlic taters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just shoot us, Madison. Don't bore us to death. No, ho, 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 Madison. Just shoot him, okay? I enjoy chicken as much as the next man. Man after my own heart. Yeah, hey, you ever been to Popeye's chicken? Popeye's. Yeah, real spicy, spicy recipe. Extra spicy. It'll flip your wig, cousin. You don't say. Yeah. Kill this guy. You left during that sequence. It's supposed to be funny. I think that works pretty well, no? Yeah, but by that time, I was already uh, arguing with the film because... <laughs> okay, but they he, said, don't shoot him. In, like, he's only going to kill Kadeem Hardison, right? Right, right. But at that point, I, what was confusing to me, and I, I, at that particular point, I remember being hung up on the scene before that because because two scenes before that, the, these guys, were, and particularly the star of the film, was, was just kicking ass with as many people that would come at him, five, ten people, no matter, it wasn't an issue. And then two cops pull up, and they had AK-47 machine guns, whatever, and then, and then two cops come up with holstered, you know, regular cop guns, and all of a sudden they're able to take them in. I was like, "Wait a minute! You can't take two cops with little pea shooters when you were taking." I on think they don't. I think they don't <laughs> want to bring bring in more cops because that's probably what would happen if you started beating up actual cops, as opposed <laughs> to the henchmen illegally trying to obtain you. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, yeah, but it was just, it's 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 the way that he just got demure when two cops pulled him. And I was like, "Come on! You just kicked their kicked their everybody's ass. What? Why? Why are two do, cops? Do, guys? You you don't let the movies wash over." you when you're watching a silly thing like this right you got it you got to let it just work on you, you uh, that's know? my issue with yeah. with martial arts because i i think because i've been in so many fights in my life i'm i'm, I'm gonna call everything like wait a minute you know it, it's well, just... but it's a mix of you know sort of a ballet element to it and a silly yeah. element and then like then there's the athletic portion of it i mean it's like kind of like calling out wrestling as fake well of course it is i know i, so I hate wrestling too <laughs> but no continue i mean that, okay. that these are the things i wrestle with well and i guess it's my ocd but going through the film like every time i'm like ah come on <laughs> go especially a silly movie like this but I, I mean i wouldn't have singled this movie out like just because it's a buddy movie that was made before Rush Hour, or it's doing wire foo before The Matrix, even if The Matrix eventually comes out first because they delay the drive for so long, um, or like the obvious references to, to Quentin Tarantino by having the chatty henchman, and even the character's name is Toby Wong, if you notice that, which yeah. is right out of Reservoir Dogs, where Lawrence Tierney's going, Toby Wong? Who's that little Chinese girl? It's the same thing, or when uh, they DeCascos pretends that his name is uh, Samuel Hung. Uh, which is a, who's a martial arts star who, who, like Jackie Chan, got his start in Enter the Dragon. 
um, who uh, who was in also the show Martial Law. Um, Part of the casting here felt, I mean, obviously there's a racial element throughout anything, but the idea that they're casting the black guy is like the Eddie Murphy 48, another 48 hours or whatever, uh, just a funny guy who was talking all the time and 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 trying to in, inject comedic stuff to, uh, you know, fight stuff. It just felt like, you know, this this became a stereotypical uh, token uh, black guy, funny guy as the uh, as a partner in buddy in a buddy action movie. It is. A, it, it does have standard buddy action elements. I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest otherwise. Um, but that I mean that's that's the genre that you're working with here. Um, I mean, you know, he's playing a sad sack who's like, you know, about to be divorced and unemployed and can't figure out a song to write and all that stuff. Um, And he's just brought brought a yes. Yes, it was before Rush Hour uh, 97. Um, And uh, and but, you know, after 48 hours, obviously. Uh, And and he's, you know, goes from kidnappy to, you know, now he's going to he's going to get part of the money that uh, that Mark DeCascos is going to theoretically end up with. Um, So. uh, I mean, honestly, like the, the 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 backstory is not all that important, but I think to cut it out as they did in the in the uh, HBO cut is probably not a not a great move because it just makes them seem like indestructible, you know, mercenaries, which is the wrong tone for what is uh, kind of light. I would say, wouldn't you say this movie is relatively light most of the way through? I, I would say almost, yeah. I think entirely. I mean, it felt like um, you know it it was had that. That's what kept me in it because mm-hmm. it felt like almost like a comedy in a way <laughs> it, and it is and then i think the movie's pretty good and then i think it gets great once we get to the britney murphy sequences because she is giving a deeply weird performance playing uh somebody i whose name is deliverance right. which you wouldn't know in the I movie thought, i felt like that she was trying to do a marissa a marissa tomei uh i think she's playing parody. miss piggy i think she's playing miss piggy yeah. um i think she's doing the whole thing as miss piggy um <laughs> And uh, I think that's emblematic in uh, the clip I sent you. Um, so for those of us who don't know, before you press play, uh, they eventually escape and they go to a motel. And uh, Brittany Murphy is playing, she was pro- she's playing, I guess, 16 or something, but she was about 18 at the time. She's playing a bored teenager, taking care of her parents' motel. And they get there because they need to go to a garage and hide their vehicle and, and repair it while they're on the run from, all, from the henchmen. Um, and the clip is called hotel uh, fight. No play, no. uh, uh Brittany Murphy and the car. Uh, I drive, see. drive slash Brittany Murphy and the car. Oh, there it is. Okay. There's nothing like a mean go getter. You know what they say? You could tell what a man's like by the kind of car that he drives. <laughs> When did Godzilla get a hold of your car? Oh, wait a minute now. Godzilla didn't do nothing to my car. Look from this angle. This, this is not so bad, is it? Mm-hmm. I love this car. Tell me, where would two guys in a bullet-riddled 1973 Dodge Challenger be headed? You are full of questions. You are not full of answers. We're going sightseeing. Mm, right. Yeah. Right. Really? Mm. As a matter of fact, you should go wake up Sleeping Beauty because we don't have much time to hang out. Got an important sight to see? Exactly. <laughs> important sight to see is called a paycheck. Who's paying you? What are you writing a book? 
Okay. Do me a favor. Don't be so inquisitive, okay? That kind of shit gets people shot. Something wrong with your eyes? Look, if you gotta know, go ask Toby. He loves to tell this story. I very much enjoy what she's doing. Did you hear the the Miss Piggy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the flirting and the and the relentlessness of it that it just becomes almost harmless in its own weird way. And I, that whole thing is so strange. Like you're just throwing because DeCascos doesn't have a lot to play in the movie, and so everyone else's character is becomes much more entertaining. Because he's what's funny is that like DeCascos' character is really just a MacGuffin in his own movie. Because right. you know he, his part is I have to go get paid, and <laughs> and. I'm going to fight my way to it. And we never, like the movie never even gets to the point where they show us him, him actually getting paid. We just assume that they eventually get there because it doesn't matter. Cause it's just, as I said, like an excuse to hang action sequences on. Um, but the, just like that scene, I don't know. You don't, do you like that scene with Brittany Murphy? Do you think it's funny? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually like uh, that scene a lot. The, the whole, the whole scene, uh, the fight scene and all that stuff and the yeah. gunplay and and, and the, uh, the gun jamming was my favorite part of that and his reaction to the gun. Well, not jam. just that, but what about the bit with the arm? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, all of it. That that yeah. scene. That's the, probably my favorite scene at home. Yeah, the, that twenty minute section in the middle, I think, is some of the best stuff. Not just in this movie, and sort of any martial arts movie of the era. Like in terms of its creativity and in terms of the energy. Um, but what, what, as I said, like, you know, DeCascos doesn't really have a character to play. So, so they load up the movie with like different character actors. And one of the two best are the henchmen, John Piper Ferguson and the great Tracy Walter, who, if you've seen Rachel Man as many times as I have, is always a joy to watch. He's the one playing Hedgehog. Right. He's the, the one who's always eating. Yeah. And like, this is, this is unique because one of, most of these movies, whenever they got, they got one henchman, they might give some character to, but not two. And this right. one gives you both. Um, I can only think of something like Hard Target, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, in which Lance Henriksen and Arnold Vosloo have plenty to do as sort of henchmen and co-henchmen or villain and henchmen with actual characters. Um, like in this one, you not only hear about their violent past and the stuff they've gone through and their frustration, but you even get their eating habits and what they watch on TV. And if you could play that clip, this this amuses me to no end. It says, Drive Walter Einstein Frog. Joe's not as good as it once was. They see these criminals are real badass. Now any butt pans he pulls a drive-by gets 15 minutes of fame. I hate it. I want to watch Walter the Einstein frog. <laughs> you know what I hate? I hate that I have to call that son of a bitch in Hong Kong and listen to him matter at me. Felden's gracious sacrifice will prolong the life of another. But first, 
Your final diagnosis, Dr. Walter. So there's no reason to put this in this movie, but I find that stuff so funny um, that I, I mean, I even cut up the clip to make it just, just the Walter the Einstein. It's not even the, the, it's not the only time it appears. They've got a clip later of them watching Walter the Einstein frog too. And it's just, you know, it's just a joy. Like the thing gets so goofy at times, like when, when, when they're singing along to that awful rap song in the car and bobbing their heads or yeah. when, when uh, uh, Marta Cascos improvises some karaoke to Yankee Doodle Dandy when they're in the club at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's very hard. It's very hard to dislike the movie when it's like that. And then since the fights are good, it's just it just maintains this energy. Um, and again, like Brittany Murphy is so weird and so enjoyable. She's only in the movie for maybe 20, 25 minutes. Um, but she seems to be flirting not just with Kadeem Hardison and Mark Dacascos. She seems to be flirting with, I'd say, the air. I'd say uh, the ceiling. I'd say uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, whatever, whatever was in her way. Um, so... Uh, and, and I, it, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sad that you didn't have a good time, but I guess it's, if your OCD is getting in the way of, of even enjoying just the basics of the martial arts and how no, impressive I, some I, of it is. Yeah, I, I, no, I dealt with that. The part I have, you know, every time I see one of those martial arts, th- mm-hmm. the martial arts segments, and I see them kind of wait and pose after doing something, like wait for it to, uh, and hold on a shot or something like that. It, you know, it's just, I, I always go, you know, in a real fight, nobody waits to be, for the punch to go through. Or all. It's, it's like really sloppy, and you don't see any of that. Well, it's, it's a bit better here because these are real martial artists. You, like they don't do what, what, is it, what they do in a lot of uh, Hollywood films. Where you, you're you're cutting around the stunt double, and then you get a close up on the actor's face. These, you know, Mark DeCasso's a real athlete uh, can really right. do this stuff, and I so get you that. see him do he you see him do the moves. They're not cheating; like he's really jumping around, um, and it, it, you know, and really kicking people and really knocking people all over the place. They're not trying to hide him, with, which is what they do in a large. And they're not doing, as I said, the barroom brawl stuff. Um, I, I hope you could play the 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 last clip, which is the drive hotel fight. Um, he's trying to fight off all these henchmen in the motel room and they have stun guns that make lightsaber noises uh, because they want to knock him out, but they don't want to kill him. What the hell? I just had it now. Oh, here it is.
Now you giggle through that as you're supposed to. I assume you, you thought that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I totally appreciate the uh, artistry that goes into it and and the athleticism and all that stuff. And then you know, doing that in a confined space and having five or six people and it's not slow. Like compared to the Jimmy Cagney scene, did they speed it like, up at all? Uh, they can from time to time, but I think he can move that quickly. I mean, what you're not obviously seeing. Uh, you know, one one shot all at once. It's not like old boy where you have a, a hammer fight in the hallway or something where he's fighting for four minutes straight and getting tired in the middle of it. But right. yes, th there are elements of things that are sped up. It certainly happens in Jackie Chan movies where things are sped up, but probably to a point where it's not noticeable. Right. Um, maybe like five or ten percent. But I mean, he's 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 a great athlete, and so um, it's it's and he would have been I don't know in his early thirties. Certainly feasible that he could have could have done that scene. You know, obviously not in one take, but because it's cut up in different ways, and you couldn't show the whole thing in the tight spacing. But yeah, I don't, I don't know why they would have to. Um, uh, so the movie, you know, never really gets released. It goes kind of straight to HBO a couple of years later, misses the zeitgeist of when it would have been a big deal. And uh, you know, the only way you could see this version is a, uh, you know, on a PAL DVD that I have, um, because the overseas film group doesn't doesn't do anything with it. They they just said, well, we got our HBO deal, just. Let's uh, let's go with it. Um, uh, you know, that's odd because somebody who I talked to on Twitter uh, basically telling mm -hmm. promoing this said mm -hmm. he knew the movie and described it pretty well. So I, mm -hmm. I'm assuming he did know the movie. Where did he see it? <laughs> HBO probably. So if you oh. if you try to stream this now, they're streaming the the cut version, the rescored version, and the crop oh. versions. That's what you can see. That's short about twenty minutes. Oh. Um, and it's obviously not the one the director wanted. He didn't want the score that they used. He didn't want like, you know, the, the, that just goes from action scene to action scene, even probably less plausibly than it does, you know, in the version you watched, um, where it's just jumping from thing to thing. I think not only they cut the backstory, they cut the, um, uh, after the movie ends with his, his just killing the last dude, not even the villain with the whole, uh, blowing himself up thing. Wow. I haven't watched the, the cut version in a while. Um, but that whole goofy thing with the uh, with the the missile, I don't know. I don't remember if that's there. It's a fairly different movie, and it's you're kind of like, eh, you know, it doesn't have the rhythms that right, and it, and it doesn't really work as well. But everyone knows the action sequences, so they would some people would know it. But you'd have to put in some effort to find this version that that you right. and I watched um, in Europe. Yes, you can easily find it, but not not over here. Um, so. Uh, and I mentioned like, you know, the overseas film group and that sort of international co-production, the international uh, financing that, that Canon and Golden Globe has perfected um, and still continues to this day. If you want to read more about it, um, uh, I wrote an article about 10 years ago on my film, on my site, uh, regrettablesincerity.com, but you can just look up the, the uh, name of the article and it'll come up. It's called Nicolas Cage in the Temple of Contractual Obligation. <laughs> and it's it's basically an analysis of how this kind of co-financing and all these different companies started and who the who the main players were because a lot of them continue like they start with Canon and then it just goes to Millennium Films and New Image 
And then it just goes, you know, you, and, the, you know, the same players or offshoots of the same players and the same ideas of like, get a big star, uh, get a poster and then sell the name. And then we don't care what it is. And that's a lot of how this works. So what's weird is a situation like driving where the movie's actually good and it does exactly what it's supposed to. And it doesn't make any difference. They're just interested in selling off to various territories, cutting it up to a running time. And that's the end of it. So nothing happens to it. Um, and then, of course, you know, made the Matrix, Crouching Tiger, Rush Hour, all steal the thunder by the time the movie eventually comes out straight to HBO. So, like, it isn't like this is like the top uh, echelon of cinema. So, you you know, you're not going to be like, oh, well, this is going to be, you know, best picture nominee, like, you know, like Crouching Tiger or, or like a $200 million movie like Rush Hour, whatever, any of those situations. So Drive disappears um, and DeCascos... Um, uh, and, and wire foo becomes a thing. Jet Li and and uh, Jackie Chan come to America. Uh, all these directors come to America via this producer named Moisha Diamant, who produces uh, for Van Damme, Hard Target, uh, Maximum Risk, and Double Team for the three major uh, Hong Kong directors who came over, which would be John Woo, Shoi Hark, and Ringo Lam. And Moisha Diamant produces all three movies just to bring all these guys. Now, most of them don't ever stay. They don't stay in America. Uh, only John Woo really has any success with Face Off and Mission Impossible 2 before going back to Hong Kong. Um, but this kills the momentum of Mark DeCascos being this big star. And um, he eventually goes and makes the TV show of The Crow called The Crow Stairway to Heaven. I don't um, remember that. Well you, you, well, you wouldn't remember the TV show, but you know the movie The Crow? Yeah. Uh, with Brandon Lee? Brandon Lee. Um, right. So the premise of The Crow, it's a very violent revenge movie in which – you know, he takes revenge on the the people who killed him and raped and killed his fiance, And then it's kind of enclosed. Like, there's nothing more to it. So how would you make a TV show version of it in which you've got to water down the violence? And once he gets his revenge, then what? Well, it just sort of becomes like Highway to Heaven or Renegade, where he's like helping out a person each week. And the violence has got to be tame. And he's just got to, he's got a crow. And he's, he's, you know, come back to life and he's got a crow on his shoulder. So it's kind of lame. It doesn't really work. And uh, it, it disappears after a season. Um, uh, Steve Wang, the director of Drive, uh, never gets another feature going really ever again. Um, uh, he has one feature, but it never gets released. And then he goes back to making, um, uh, doing like makeup for movies like uh, Planet of the Apes. Um, and the, he just did Bill and Ted Face the Music, that sequel. Um, what's one I'm forgetting? Um, uh, Underworld, he did the makeup for. But so he goes back to that, doing creature and makeup effects. And, and that sort of ends the career because of this weird distribution thing when I think the movie is fairly well directed for what it is. Like it could be considerably more incoherent with, with someone who was a lot <laughs> sloppier and haphazard in what they were doing without someone who had a vision of like what this should look like. So um, Tecascos has the crow show. It doesn't, it doesn't really work. Um, it gets canceled. And then you have what he does with uh, the producer who produced um, – uh, Crying Freeman, the movie that never got released. He they do Brotherhood of the Wolf, which is a big budget French film in which he plays the Native American, you know, fighter. In which it's it's sort of a, a mix of a monster movie, a costume drama, uh, soft core sex, kung fu, um, and all the everything else. It's like basically a movie for fourteen year old boys. It is it is the most. It probably has the most immature scene transition you've ever heard of. And I know the notion of an immature scene transition, but there's a scene in Brotherhood of the Wolf in which we see Monica Bellucci's naked breast and the director dissolves to a mountain. 
Um, <laughs> and you never, <laughs> it's so infantile that it's kind of funny. It's, um, I love it. <laughs> it's something I would definitely do. <laughs> now the movie is two and a half hours long because they put everything in it. Um, and Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci are in it. And then some other actors you may, you may or may not know. DeCascos has a small role as sort of like the action guy who's playing like the lead actor's uh, you know, uh, cohort who does all the fighting and is silent because he's because the Cascos's French probably wasn't that great. Um, movie is a, is a big hit, but I think what what how you differentiate something like Drive and Brotherhood of the Wolf is while there's a lot of fighting in Brotherhood of the Wolf, this director who's the same guy who made Crying Freeman doesn't know how to shoot this action or he doesn't trust the audience. So there's a very brief clip I, I gave you. Um, uh, where DeCascos is performing the martial arts. This is Brotherhood of the Wolf uh, fight, where DeCascos is performing the martial arts. And you'll watch as he's doing it, but he doesn't trust that we want to see the whole shot. So he's cutting away just as the people are falling. He's kicking them in the face. And it's so like, wait, but you know this guy can do it and just get some stuntmen. These, these people in the scene are anonymous. It doesn't matter who they are. Just put stuntmen in the scene and they can do falls properly. But this it's a very dated style in terms of the stylized way that this film is made. So that could be part of it. But yeah, if you can play that clip, it's, a, it's short. Yeah, well, it's, it's a period piece. But do you see what I mean? Like how he doesn't trust them to do the falls? Like he's cutting before that. And it's it's right. uh, it's annoying because obviously DeCascos is an athlete and he can do those stunts. And if you hired the right people, they could do those stunts. But I think it's emblematic of what how, how certain, like a movie like Drive differentiates itself because you can see what's going on in the fight. And there you see the impact, but not the fall. The the, the thing is, is meaningless without the fall, right? Because you're only getting half of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. It, it bothers me, but but it's it's weird because you have this like major director um, doing this big budget movie, and it's like so you didn't hire like the best stunt people, really, because this movie cost like thirty million dollars in in France, which was which is a huge amount of money there. Um, so despite the fact that that Brotherhood of the Wolf is a hit, he doesn't really get any juice off of it at all. Cascos doesn't. So he goes sort of the direct to video realm. Um, he's in a lot of really terrible movies most of which are not even watching at all. I just found the whole thing depressing. I was watching a, from for a couple of weeks and just going, God, one more slog after another. I had to skip the Asylum movie that he did. Uh, Asylum makes these mockbusters, which are they release a blockbuster right before, a mockbuster before a blockbuster comes out. So he's in a movie called I Am Omega because I Am Legend was about to come out. Um, and there's so many of them and, and there's no diamond in the rough. There just isn't. I wanted there to be, I wanted I wanted there to be a real movie in there, but it just they just don't they don't have yeah it's just not there. <laughs> and um, so eventually, what happens is like he continues to work, and like you can see him, um, you know, I, I yeah, you know, many many of these movies that I wa watched at DeCascos, they've got terrible dubbing. Um, he directed a movie called Showdown in Manila, which is obviously a reference to Showdown in Little Tokyo. And it's a, it's a, you know, he, he's, he's in the only good scene in the movie, um, but it's mostly like a, a vanity project for this Russian MMA guy who 
does, is like over steroid and does everything in slow motion, including knife fights. That movie would drive you nuts. Um, uh, but obviously the showdown, a little Tokyo thing is, is, is the key because Tia Carrera's in it and she's in Toronto and the same villain from showdown, a little Tokyo as well. But all, but these guys are all like 70 years old. So it's like, I mean, the reference is lost on most people, you know, 25 years later. And you'd think, you know, oh, you know, Dacascos wants to get in directing so he can have at least more control, but it doesn't really work. And the movie's forgotten about, and it came out maybe four or five years ago, but uh, it's, it's one you can totally skip. Um, but uh, he's in, he's in so many of these sort of like German produced movies with like terrible dubbing, like where all the ADR sounds like it's recorded in a bathroom. And then they'll just be, you know, and, and these movies will get picked up by studios like Sony or universal because they don't really care uh, that the movie is good or bad because these, these studios will have these low budget arms uh, and they'll, they'll put out like sniper four, you know, or hard target two or, eight millimeter two or starship troopers like things that have no reason to have a sequel and they just stick a title on there and and they don't really care like they'll just spend much less money than they would on a studio project you know say five million dollars or something like that but even the low budget version independent version is more inspired than these kind of thrown together things and the cascos was in some of those but just a lot of direct-to-video garbage and it's kind of depressing uh, eventually he, he was able to parlay some of this into playing villains. So you he fights Jet Li in Romeo Must Die. And most recently you can see him in John Wick 3 as the villain. If you could put up that picture there. Um, uh, uh, he's one of the final, yeah, that's him in John Wick 3. There's a large fight in a, in a building in that that goes on for quite some time. Wow. It's very, that's very self-aware. doesn't even look like him anymore. Well, he's he's got a shaved head. Um, but, you know, this, you know, that's 20 years after Drive. So right. he's not going to look the same at all. The fact that he can still do the uh, martial arts in his late fifties is, I, I would say, pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, um. So, uh, but so Dacascos has been playing villains, but but what's weird is what he's most known for right now. I would say besides that is he's on Iron Chef America, which aired from like two thousand four to two thousand eighteen. He plays the chairman, who is supposedly the nephew of the Japanese chairman. Um, even though, you know, Mark DeCasco is not Japanese, but you know, I guess all, all the Asians look alike, whatever. Um, and, uh, he shows up, uh, at the beginning of every episode, giving the dramatic entrance and shows them what the seat, have you ever watched Top Chef or I no Iron Chef, Iron Chef or any of that stuff? It's not really for me. It's not my kind of show. I can't really follow it. It seems fairly random, but at the, at the beginning of every episode, he'll like des describe who the, the, the contestants are going to be and then he'll show what the, uh, uh, what the secret ingredient that they've got to use in their dishes are. And then at the end, they'll show him eating the dishes, pretending that he's a judge, but he's not really a judge. And then he'll announce the winner. And then there's two other people hosting the show. Like he does no other talking in the middle 40 minutes after the first two and the last two. So it's this strange, strange <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah, I know. And he's in like 250 of the episodes and it's probably the way that most people know who he is. So I clipped out uh, basically what he does in Iron Chef America. So you can show that. Um, I think they hired him because he can do the backflip in the opening credits. But you know, this is two minutes—the basically the entirety of what he would do in any episode. I have to find it. What's it called? Iron Chef America. Iron. Oh, here it is. The time has come to once again answer life's most savory question: Whose cuisine reigns supreme? This is Iron Chef America. Three, two, one, time's up. A delectable Japanese tradition has taken root in American 
soil. We have been graced with the establishment of our very own Kitchen Stadium, where our nimble chairman has brought together the pungent flavors of East and West. It is here where the best of the best from around the world will meet. Chef Bayless, welcome. Thank you very much. You honor us with your presence. Oh, thank you very much. Today will be your debut competition here in Kitchen Stadium. That's correct. You look very fit, ready for the battle. How I do you feel? I think I am. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling completely ready and Excellent. very excited. Excellent. We anticipate a great match. Each battle has a unique recipe with a flavor and essence all its own. And so on this day in Kitchen Stadium, I have decided that our challenger, Chef Bayless, will face off against Iron Chef. Flay! Well, I for one. But there is one more ingredient to this battle, our secret ingredient. The theme on which our chefs will offer their succulent variations. Today's secret ingredient is... <laughs> Buffalo! <laughs> so now, America, with an open heart and empty stomach, I say unto you in the words of my uncle, <laughs> and the fight is on here in Kitchen Stadium. Oh my God! <laughs> now, this, other than him, I, I wouldn't recommend the show at all. But, but you know, if you get into that stuff, I guess you got 15 years worth of uh, shows with him on it. If you, if it you probably, like that sort it of probably thing. needs a paycheck more than anything, uh, because you know, I, I'm tired of waiting for his big break to come, and you know, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> right. Point. I mean, he just he works plenty. Um, but it's and you know he's even in like the Mortal Kombat uh, web series that they did. Although they didn't, he didn't put that they didn't put him in the recent movie that just came out a couple weeks ago. I think he would have worked as maybe one of the villains or something. That, like that. was a perfect example why I do not have television in my house. Uh, that's it right there. I mean, was, you were laughing the whole time. I mean, you know, I know, but it's just like it's, the show it, takes I'm, itself very seriously, obviously. But there's a <laughs> there's an element of camp that can't be avoided. I think. Um. So, you know, he had all these distribution issues with the major films, and then it just never happens for him. And which I think is a shame because, like, even in, in, in garbage that he was in early in his career, like Kickboxer 5, you know, he's charming. He's He's got the charisma, and he can he's an athlete. And you're like, uh, why can't he be a big star? That seems unfair. But it just it just didn't happen for him. And, and uh, you know... Uh, I guess uh, I guess we're gonna move downhill in your in your mind because you probably like Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning even less than than Drive. Well, um, no, it's it's a different movie, completely. Yeah. I mean, different kind of movie. It's not. Yeah, it is totally. To me, it wasn't even really, really a true martial arts movie. It, it is, it, I would say, in the second half of the movie, but it is a very strange movie that I deeply love, despite its flaws. Yeah. Um. So simultaneous to the Cascos becoming. Uh, almost a big name. Scott Adkins was getting stunt work in major action films like The Accidental Spy, um, and he was on uh, British soap operas like EastEnders, um, trying to you know hone his craft. Uh, and he didn't manage, manage anything substantial for many years. He was mostly working as a stuntman. Um, and you see him like in the the Pink Panther remake with Steve Martin, or like you know Henchman Number Five, or like Guy Who Fights Jet Li for a second in Unleashed, or that sort of thing. And uh, his big breakthrough, he'd been in some direct-to-video movies, um, was a movie called Undisputed 2. Now, remember I mentioned earlier about these unrelated sequels to uh, uh, properties owned by studios in which they just stick a name on a thing. Undisputed right. 2 is like that. 
So basically, Undisputed is a Walter Hill movie from 2002 with Wesley Snipes and Ving Rhames basically playing Mike Tyson on his way to prison. It's a prison boxing movie uh, made in 2002. It was not successful. Uh, there's no particular reason to make a sequel to a direct video sequel to it, especially with Michael J. White, who played uh, Spawn and also Black Dynamite, uh, playing uh, the Ving Rhames Mike Tyson role. Um, and it's about him getting his comeuppance in prison, being framed, and then and then it's like a, a prison MMA slash boxing movie with all the associated prison cliches. The whole thing was kind of came about because remember I mentioned earlier all the people who worked with Canon who right. then went on to screw. So one of those was uh, Avi Lerner and uh, and then and Millennium Films and uh, Boaz Davidson who had worked with Canon as well. And so they come up with some of these direct-to-video ideas and that's undisputed too. And in that movie, Michael J. White is ostensibly the lead and the villain is played by Scott Adkins, who is a Brit, but he's playing a Russian named Boyka. Um, and he looks just like, what if Ben Affleck was Russian and uh, over-muscled? And I, I was thinking it was Dolph Lundgren the whole time. In Undisputed 2? Yeah. <laughs> But we're uh, no, not a, in, no. in Universal Soldier. Oh, he is, yes, but I will I will get to Universal Soldier. I'm just kind of leading you into Scott Adkins and how like um so so uh, Undisputed 2 is um uh it gets into this weirdly murky territory because on the surface everything about the movie is cheap. Um it has all the prison clichés. There's nothing new. The characters are rote. Um but Michael J White and Scott Adkins are just charismatic as hell. Uh, the fights are brutal and they're creative, uh, including a moment where Scott Adkins uses the ref to balance, to kick a guy in the face. Um, and uh, it's, that stuff's very entertaining. And you get um, the, the key, the key to the, any of these fights is, is the, 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 uh, the design, the guy who designs the fights, just like with drive has the Japanese stunt team. It's always very important that um, the stunt team and the athlete who is the lead of the film get are in sync. And that's what happens with a lot of these movies like with drive um, and in a lot of the uh, Scott Adkins movies, Larnell Stovall worked with them, but there's a lot of the same names that will show up over and over and over who, who choreograph the fights. And, and as long as they're in sync and, they, and they, they go along with the ideas, you'll get something very creative and very interesting in the midst of what is kind of a cruddy movie. So it's this weird balance because the elements stink, but <laughs> The, the specifics of what they're doing, hey, it's a dumb MMA movie slash boxing movie, and these guys are so charming, and there's such energy between them, and the fights are really fun, that you you get into this weird thing where you give a movie like this slack, right? Because because on the surface, it's bad, and you're like, there's a low-budget curve here. And then as the movie gets better, you're like, well, this is pretty good, but you're still not forgetting that it's also not very good, right? <laughs> You're still remember. You still have to remember, right? All the all the crud that they put at the edges here to make this into a real movie totally work against it. But it's in a way, it's working for it. If you does that make sense? Yeah. Where you're yeah, like yeah. you're grading on a curve. You're like, and then the better the movie gets in all the other elements, the more it becomes just kind of a regular mediocre movie. And then you're like, okay, this is professional, and now I got to judge against bigger budget things. So there's a strange balance in which how do you how do you keep that right? How do you keep it so it's still kind of bad? But it's a lot of fun, and then the elements, so so it sticks in the mind more because there'll be some outstanding element in it, um, and that's kind of what these undisputed sequels are like. So the un undisputed two is like a hit within the direct-to-video realm. Okay, so I'm, I'm then, not sure if I have the right clip though. It's, it's, <coughs> no, I'll get, I'll get to it. I'll get to it in a second. I didn't okay. give you undisputed two. There's just too much to go through, so I didn't want to give you everything. So undisputed two is a huge hit within the direct-to-video realm, 
And then, so they make Undisputed 3. Michael J. White, who's the lead in Undisputed 2, is not in it. It becomes a vehicle for Scott Atkins, who plays the villain in the second one, which doesn't happen very often, where you have the villain take over, and then it's just a bio, not a biopic, but like a character piece for him. And they kind of throw away all the prison cliches, and it's just a fighting movie, where they're just, they're all being bet on by Russian and American mobsters, uh, which was true in the second one, but like, it's really just official. And, and so because they get rid of all, they skew all that stuff, it becomes more entertaining because it's, it's less predictable. Although again, the, the basic elements, the dialogue's bad. And <clears throat> other than the fights and the charm of Scott Atkins, you don't have a lot. Um, but you still have that problem of like, the better the movie is, the more you 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 lose the curve. So, um, Undisputed 3, because it's basically like a tournament movie, you get all these different styles. So the clip I gave you features some capoeira, which is a style I mentioned earlier. This clip does not feature Scott Atkins, but I just love looking at capoeira because it's this mix of dancing and fighting. So if you want to play that. That was Atkins for a second there with a with a scowling face. Looking like Ben Affleck. This guy ain't bad, huh? So pretty good, pretty good fight too. That's a good fight, right? And I, I don't you do you like watching Capoeira? I think that's a very entertaining thing to watch. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, well, because there's just no other fighting style like that where you look like you're dancing and you're going to kick somebody's ass. Um, but so so Undisputed Three is also a hit, and so much so that uh, a couple of years ago they made a, just a pure vehicle for uh, Scott Atkins, just called Boyka, um, Undisputed Four. Which, which is half vehicle for him with the fighting and then half like a character piece. It's not as great as people, like, it's another one of those, they want to believe that it's a great, like, secret winner. Uh, as a movie, again, the dialogue's poor, the acting can be rough, the dubbing can be bad, but the fighting is a lot of fun. So if you, I would say that two and three are probably a bit better for, eh, it, it didn't help that I watched them, like, uh, on consecutive days. I think these things are not improved in in that sort of way. But yeah. I, I like Scott Atkins a lot, so I, I didn't I didn't mind. So, but the Undisputed series helps him build a more of a career, not just uh, in the direct to video realm. Like with uh, he gets a series called Ninja, and then he gets the El Gringo movie. But then he keeps getting work uh, as a stunt double and as like like the henchman or whatever in big budget movies, like the Bourne Ultimatum, where he'll be in a fight in Doctor Strange or Zero Dark Thirty or The Expendables Two. 
Um, and while he's doing some stunt work, he gets a call to be in uh, Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. And the, the stunts he's doing is uh, The Dark Knight Rises. So he's doing the stunt work and the fighting for both uh, Batman and Bane in that movie. Um, wow. He's doubling both during the fights. Um, and that's when he gets the call uh, to do Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Now, the Universal Soldier series is a confusing melange of nonsense. Uh, essentially, it's uh, Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, and they're sort of recreated uh, soldiers who are, were killed during Vietnam, and now they're sent on dangerous missions and blah, 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 blah. Uh, the first one is in 92 uh, by Roland Emmerich, who later made Independence Day and Godzilla and Stargate. And then there's a sequel in 99, and then the thing disappears. There's some direct-to-video stuff. Um, and then the third one comes out 10 years later, and it's directed by John Hyams, who's the son of Peter Hyams. Peter Hyams, who made 2010 and Capricorn 1 and The Relic and End of Days and Time Cop and Sudden Death. Um, I don't know if any of these ring a bell. Capricorn 1 is the move, moon movie? It's the Mars yeah. one, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. And yeah. 2010 is the sequel to 2001. Um, and, uh, you know, the Presidio, uh, stuff like that. So he's like a genre guy. And then and John Hyams is his son. And in fact, uh, John uh, Peter Hyams used to shoot his own movies when he was when he was a major director. So he ends up shooting uh, Universal Soldier Regeneration for his son John John Hyams, and wow. they bring back uh, uh, Van Dam and uh, Lundgren to shoot this movie. But since it's it's uh, you know you can just bring back these people as much as you want because they're essentially clones or they're whatever they are. They're regenerated. Doesn't make any difference. You can do this forever. And it's kind of a cheap movie, uh, but looks great. The fights are really intense, um, and it's all shot uh, like what looks like an abandoned factory, um, right. like a lot of these things in Romania. Um, and so there, this this movie is kind of a hit for the direct-to-video market, and it inspires the producer, uh, Moishe Diamant, who I mentioned earlier, the guy who brought uh, Van Damme and other people to from Hong Kong uh, to want to produce another movie which ends up being Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Um, and so his concept uh, in Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning is kind of a passing of the torch, I would say. I think that's fair. I think that Atkins thought of it the same way. So Van Damme has to approve of this before, um, before he would uh, agree to be in the film. He may have had a relationship with Peter Himes and John Himes and the producer Moshe Diamant, but it's different when a hero, like a guy who plays heroes all the time, finally plays the villain because that's how he's presented in day of reckoning. You right. don't see that every day. That doesn't happen. You know, think no, about I, when that, that was what struck me right from that. Like, wow, Van Damme's a bad guy in this. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine that. <laughs> and he's the hero in the other movies in the series. So, and, and this whole life, he was a hero right before that. I don't think he ever played a bad guy before. This ex ex exactly. So you don't, you don't see that. You don't see like, you know, Seagal didn't play a villain in a mainstream movie until Machete long after his basic like studio career was over. You Maybe you have like Arnold doing it in Batman and Robin, but it's kind of a joke. He's doing it as Mr. Freeze, still doing a catchphrase. It's not a very serious villain role. It just doesn't happen. So uh, basically, Hyams has to wait until Van Damme approves the script, which is not until one day before production starts because he has to be okay with um, you know, being killed in a certain way and being the villain and being presented in in such a way. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if you could play that. Uh, uh, I mean, Atkins had played villains before, um, and obviously because he played Boyka, but he's been now he's he's going you know a hero. So there's a clip I gave you called Atkins Undisputed, which is a podcast 
about Scott Atkins in which Scott Atkins is frequently interviewed. And so this is a clip from an episode on Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning. Uh, I don't see it. Is it the, the, the audio clip? It's the audio clip, yes. Oh, okay, audio clip. Okay, let me get, cancel this because the audio clip is... Uh, sorry about this, folks. Uh, share screen. Make sure I get the audio in there. And this should work. Now that's it. Well, just sticking with Van Damme, it's and the passing of the torch. Um, I'm not sure Van Damme would have seen it this way, but certainly it wasn't lost on me that the fact that I'm stepping into his franchise. And we're talking about a kid that grew up on his movies and had pictures of him all over my bedroom, you know, completely idolizing the guy and, and coming to do Universal Soldier 4 and then being the guy that is about to, to kill Luke Devereaux. Um, it was kind of a moment, really. It, for me, it was, a, it was a big moment, and it did feel like a passing of the torch. It did feel like, wow, you know, I've, I've been inspired by this guy, and he's a huge part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, and here I am in this position, and I'm about to stick this machete in him and run him through and watch him die. <laughs> And it was a big thing for Van Damme to be killed on screen. It doesn't often happen. And so it was, it was, you know, it was a bit of a thing to be the guy to kill him. Obviously, Dolph killed him in the first one, but he came back. <laughs> and uh, he's not really been killed any other times, I don't think, unless it's stupid. Yeah, I mean, even just the idea of Van Damme playing, you know, we talked about how he's not actually the villain of the movie. So I'm just going to call him the antagonist instead. The idea of Van Damme being the antagonist in a movie was almost unheard of at that point. That's it. I think that's the whole thing. Yeah. It was a little bit of a blip there, but I think that's key. Cause so, so that was Atkins being interviewed and he understood the, the momentous occasion here. Cause what is, you know, the, the plot, if anybody doesn't know Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, it's uh, Scott Atkins wakes up and, and uh, is woken to watch his wife and child being murdered by, it turns out, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And he goes out to go find it, who, who it is. And it turns out Van Damme is running kind of an island of uh, super soldiers and is, um, is kind of a Colonel Kurtz situation, like Apocalypse Now situation. And then the movie is kind of a mix of like David Lynch and... Uh, Apocalypse Now and a standard Universal Soldier movie, but much more brutal. Um, and uh, it doesn't quite function as a normal martial arts movie at all. But, you know, because Van Damme is presented as the villain up until basically the last, you know, scene of the film, um, then he has to be okay with either the way he's dispatched and killed, but also that he's presented as this awful man throughout the entire movie. That's how, what you're going to see. Because it's really, even though Van Damme only shot for like three or four days on a 30 day shoot, because only in maybe like fifteen percent of the film, he's you know he's the, he's the face on the poster, even though right. it's obviously a Scott Adkins movie. He it's Van Damme who they're selling it on. He's the pre-sold name. He's the one they've got on the you know uh, we we sold the territory because Van Damme was in it, not because Scott Adkins is in it, who was right. not who was not anything at that point. So I understand the importance of it. Um, but uh, two, to, two two things that happen right before production starts after Van Damme signs on. One is that Moshe Diamant insists that the movie be shot in 3D, um, which makes absolutely no sense if you're not going to go theatrical, right? Because at that point in 2011, when they were 
shooting this, there is no like much, there's not much of a market for like home 3D, right? They don't have the 3D TVs yet and they're never really quite taken off. So he must be wanting to sell theatrical uh, stuff overseas because at the time in 2011, everybody was doing 3D. That's after Avatar. Everybody was either post-converting or they were shooting in 3D because there's like a, we can add money to the ticket price. But it's strange to do it for uh, a, a, what is essentially going to be a direct-to-video movie in the US. And the other thing that happens is while uh, Scott Adkins is doing the stunt stuff in for the dark Knight rises, he tears his ACL. Um, so he ends up doing all of universal soldier day of reckoning with a torn ACL. Um, and he doesn't tell Peter Hyams, sorry, John Hyams, Peter's son, John Hyams, how serious it is the entire movie, but he makes it cause he knows that if he, if he, if he mentions it, they'll just replace him and he'll miss his chance. So he leaves the, the stunt production of uh, dark Knight rises to go get this lead in this movie but he doesn't ever tell them. So um, because Himes had written this really weird script in which the, uh, the, the hero is limping for <laughs> the first half of the movie and doesn't really get into action until maybe an hour and five into the film, um, I can't tell whether they get away with it or not, but I think it helps because he's like building up strength and he's building up. And it's not that they shot this chronologically anyway, but you have this like, Oh, he's getting better. He's getting better. Oh my God. Like he's a super soldier. So when he gets his fingers cut off and then they start to grow, grow back, like you're like, what is going on here? Or when the guy gets his foot cut off and then that starts to grow back, you're like, what is going on here? Um, but it has this strange uh, energy to it that you do not see in other movies of this type at all. Like this is an odd visceral, kind of nausea inducing movie uh, with tons of strobe effects. And uh, I mean, there honestly aren't a lot of things like it, but the, what the 3d does, cause John Himes doesn't want to do 3d, but what it does is they have to shoot the fight scenes differently. Cause normally when you're shooting 2d, they, they don't have to get as close with the punches, right? They can get like a foot or so away, but because it's 3d, they got to get much closer. So the punches and everything else look like they're right that, you know, they're hitting because they really are that close. Cause they were like right here. They're just like an inch or two because they have to get that close because the 3D creates this thing. Now, I'm not saying you should watch the movie in 3D, but I think it creates this eerie feeling to most of the shots, this weird distance. I don't know if you noticed that. No. How do you watch it in 3D? You get some 3D glasses or you get the 3D Blu-ray from, from Europe, basically. <laughs> There's no reason. I I know someone who's seen the 3D. They said it doesn't make any – it doesn't help. It doesn't matter. Um, I've only seen it in 2D. I don't really – I don't. 3D doesn't work for me very well anyway, so – um, maybe it would make a difference. I mean, if the guy who's a big fan says it doesn't make a difference, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trust his judgment. So, um, so they, so because they, they get the financing because of the 3d, they're, they're told that now the 3d is what allowed the financing and they're going to get $8 million, but they only get $3 million to actually shoot it. The $5 million was, I guess, I'm not, I'm not going to make any speculation pocketed by somebody, something like that. But but Haim <laughs> says that it that it cost three million dollars to make this movie and shoot it in thirty days, which is even more ambitious considering the scale, the scope of this movie and some of these chases. That car chase that they shot, um, you know, with the car crash stuff, they did that in two days with one camera. Um, and when you watch it, you're astonished because it's a really good scene. Um, but uh, uh, as I said, so so Haim's script is like this weird mix of like David Lynch, Apocalypse Now, uh, and and Universal Soldier. Um, and it's about these, did I, did I explain the plot? I can't even remember at this point. Um, so, so it has like the basic universal soldier plot of like, you know, killers sent out to work for the government and blah, blah, blah. But this time they've revolted and 
Because it's also about the fact that maybe their memories aren't real and that they might you, you might meet your clone at some point. And, and, and then you maybe there's, the, there's some moment where you, you fail to kill your boss and he's laughing at you. And there's that, do you remember that insane scene where the guy whose face he's had torn off is like pointing out that he's a murderer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love that bit. Or all of the stuff, like th- there's just, th- this whole thing looks like just the most dystopian, uh, uncomfortable movie. Can you play the scene, um, Visit to a Friend? There's not even a fight in this scene, but just look at this build. Because he likes, you know, what Himes likes to do is um, get visual exposition instead of dialogue. So we don't even get a lot of this information. So just, yeah, just go ahead and watch this. Those who those who are listening, there's blood all over the walls everywhere he's discovering. I didn't want to. I didn't want to keep going with that, but I, that 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 is not the kind of scene you'd normally have in a in a three D martial arts movie at all. It's just building mood. It's uh, like the whole thing is so slick and nightmarish, and and uh, you know the whole thing's disorienting in the way the camera hovers like that. I don't know if you noticed that too. It seemed, it seemed like the entire movie was like that for me. It's like yeah. what, what, you know, lots of uh, long periods without a single word of dialogue in mm-hmm. it which was just like it's very crazy. disorienting the strobe stuff and, and and it's really a horror movie for about half of it I would say um, I find a very effective one um, because you're just totally in the dark as to what's going on and he it's clear like what he was doing um, I mean he did said he was inspired by Casper, Gaspar Noe but you can totally tell uh, Gaspar Noe is a French filmmaker who made Irreversible and Enter the Void. And it has that nausea feeling that you get from his films in which, just like John Himes has done here, in which you can't tell the difference between what, what is the music and what is the, what is the what are the sound effects. And like they blur into each other. 
and every, there's always something on the soundtrack that's just kind of making you feel uncomfortable, which is not normally how a martial arts movie works. It's supposed to be fun. And right. I wouldn't say this movie is fun in the normal way, though I think the action is so brutal at times and so like visceral that I, I generally don't care. You just, it's, it's physically upsetting at, at times. And I think that's a really strange way of making uh, a, a movie. I think they were going to cut you off. Um, like, like that. Um, what, is, what do you mean by time? Oh, maybe on Facebook, uh, because Facebook is having some issues with live streams that they are cutting people off. I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so this is not like this is hardly the way that you would have a fourth movie in a series, especially something as lowbrow as this. Um, and I think maybe it has to do with uh Hyams just wanting to create mood and um because he's not like a lot of the directors that Atkins later work with are actual martial artists like Je uh, Jesse Johnson and Isaac Florentine who directed the Undisputed movies. Um, and Isaac Florentine, who also, as I mentioned, I didn't mention him earlier, he also worked on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So th there's this weird connection because that's the same thing with the uh, the Mark DeCasco stuff. Um, so uh, so so what Himes is doing is creating mood and it's not like martial arts in the, in the standard way. He's trying to get to like the camera hovers. There's always just one camera. He's trying to get everything that he can and whatever's not in frame, whatever, we won't get it. And so the shots are longer. Uh, there's, it's just more intense as opposed to uh, if, if a martial arts is supposed to look like a dance, you put the camera back and then you show their feet and you show them everything. And he just like, okay, I want to write in their face. I want to show everything that sucks about this scene for each character. So it tends to be very intense. And he also does something fascinating, which is during action sequences, he does not play music because what music does is lead you in a direction. It shows you, oh, this is how I'm supposed to feel. And he doesn't do that. He wants you to be uneasy. So there's no music in any of the action sequences. It's just, especially the fights, it's just, uh, okay, where's where's this going to go? And since you don't, you can't possibly know where this is going to go, it's, you're, you're unnerved. Um, I didn't realize that watching it. Um, but, and, it's, and I know what I said, like, you know, the, he's not in an action sequence until like an hour and five in, but it's, it's not that the action isn't great. Cause I honestly think it is. And if you can set up the, um, the, 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 the universal soldier sporting goods clip, I'm going to set it up for you. Um, the, this movie was cut in the U S and so the only way to see the uncut version, which is extremely violent, the R rated version is violent, but the uncut version is way more violent and way better. Um, is to get some sort of European Blu-ray or DVD. I don't know why they did this, why they have only the R-rated cut. Um, but in this scene, I'm not going to show you the uncut version because the whole thing goes on too long, but you get a sense of how he's shooting the fight scenes and how the 3D is kind of helping in that way. Because um, uh, that whole problem with like you can't miss by a foot as you could with a 2D you, and you're only missing by an inch, I think is really evident in the scene. So if you can play this, Universal right. Soldier Sporting Goods. All right, this clip is brought to you by 555 Pipe. This is after a, a really brutal car chase. Get back. Look out.
<laughs> well, then you got the right mood. The whole thing is so brutal. Um, and that scene ends with uh, one of the great kills that I can think of, if you remember how that scene ends. Yeah, yeah. In, in the uncut version, the R-rated cuts it out, but um, the unrated version is, uh, if you can find, if you can't find the uncut version, I'm sure someone has put it on YouTube, just put that bit on YouTube, because it's great. Um, and uh, yeah, um, you know, this movie is, you know, nihilistic, and you think that there's some message, but there probably isn't, you know, you have all these guys uh, you know, on this island, uh, cheering each other. There's one scene where they're like beating up a boxer, Roy Jones, and you have this dead quiet when Van Damme puts Roy Jones out of his misery, <laughs> and and it's just like this sort of Fight Club esque, like everyone's cheering, and then and then they're just kind of quiet and they don't know what to do with it. I, I thought it was just like an homage to Fight Club at at one point. I was like, yeah, what it, the- it it, it kind of seemed like that. Um, but the whole thing, like the whole experience of watching this movie, is like the whole thing is so methodical. And it has like this bizarre inevitability to it um, about the death and destruction of everything around it. Um, right. And then there's that level of violence and the strobe lights. And like usually in, in movies like this, there's always like a nay for an innocent. And like the only innocent is this hardened stripper who shows Scott Adkins where his clone is. And that's it. That's it. Um, you don't have the the exit. You don't have the ability to um, like, oh, here's the, here's the soft thing. Here's, the, here's, here's my entry point. It's just everything makes you uneasy throughout the entire movie. Um, and um, like every, like everything stick I, to me, this movie just sticks with me. So you just have hu- the, the way that even humor works. So there's that fight that he gets in with Scott, with uh, Dolph Lundgren where L- Lundgren is laughing while he's got a machete through his hand. Right. And, 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 you know, you have, I mean, I, I, again, the, the fight choreography is by Larnell uh, Stovall again, as he was in the undisputed movies. And I love that fight with Lundgren. Um, because Lundgren is so much bigger than Scott Atkins, like probably by almost a foot difference in size. And it's this tiny little, uh, uh, location. And so they've got to make it. So Lundgren's punches and kicks don't look slow and lumbering. Cause he's so much, you know, bigger yeah. and stronger. And yet it's totally convincing and the scene completely works. Um, you wouldn't think that, that it would be possible. So the last clip that I, that I gave you, um, I mean, I, I want to show like all of these things, but I realize you know we don't have the time right. time for this. But the the Colonel Kurtz, Marlon Brando from Apocalypse Now makeup with with the Martin Sheen makeup when Van Dam shows up at the end. I mean, yeah, can you just it's a Universal Soldier Van Dam Kurtz. Oh uh, no, that ain't it. So so he's just beating his way through the entire uh, group of people. <laughs> You still believe the lies. You don't realize this is your home. You killed them. You believe I did. Then I did. Does that whole, does that whole thing just make you like it just unnerves me? I mean, I, I think it's a really good fight, but if the whole thing is so haunting. Do you find that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I find you know the movie made an impact. I mean, it got ha- okay reviews, 
But it basically uh, got dumped. It, it played uh, on video on demand. And then a month later, it played in the theater briefly, but then disappeared. And there's never been a sequel to this. Um, it didn't help John Himes necessarily. He didn't make another movie for six years until he made a Little League gambling movie. Um, and he, he made a thriller that came out last year. Um, so it's weird to think like these guys should be stars and it just both the Cascos and uh, Atkins and, and it never happened. But that wasn't the end for Atkins because I don't know if it's like the international pre-sales thing because you have all these those usual suspects I mentioned either. Again, read that Nicholas Cage in the Temple of Contractual Obligation article to really get a sense of, of it. But you get like the Moishe Diamond, Samuel Hadida, Avi Lerner, Millennium Films, New Image, all that stuff. Atkins continues to work and he makes about three or four movies a year. Now they all go direct to video, but he has a following, but it's mostly overseas. He's got like 10 million Facebook fans and he interacts with people uh, a lot. Um, he does a superb podcast called okay. the art of action. Can um, I get him on this one? I mean, you can try. He's, he's a good, you know, he seems like a good guy. He, he wants to promote. I mean, during lockdown, he started this, this podcast. It's really good. Uh, it's called the art of action. It's on YouTube. Um, he interviews all these people that he worked with. Um, uh, directors, stunt people, actors, you know, everything. But as I said, he makes three or four movies a year and they don't, you know, they're, some of them are good. Some of them are bad. It's like a mix. He tends, you know, what you'll find is if he's working with Isaac Florentine or Jesse, uh, Jesse Johnson, those tend to be better. Um, uh, but you know, mostly you have people like outlaw Vern covering him or that, that podcast, we put a clip from Atkins undisputed. Um, there was a podcast years ago that I'm sad to say, uh, did not sustain called uh, the Adkins Diet, which is a marvelous title, <laughs> but it was only about a handful of episodes, and they stopped doing it about five years ago. Um, so, um, so at, you know, Adkins is a you know very astute. He's got a lot of knowledge about action films, so those those interviews are really quite good, especially for a guy who's not a natural interviewer. He's he's exceptional at it. Um, you can find some of his movies on Netflix. Um, I was watching uh, 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 the Debt Collector. Um, oh. Uh, which one. is which is like uh, if you mix an Elmore Leonard movie right. uh, with a fighting movie, it's like a, a noir uh, fighting movie. Uh, Jesse Johnson does not do well with gunfights, so whenever there's a gunfight in the movie, it tends to be not great. But the fighting and then the the sort of vignette nature of the debt collector is excellent. So much so that they made a sequel, which isn't as good and doesn't really isn't as tight, but has its moments. And that his partner in the debt collector is very entertaining. Um, and once the debt collector really gets going, that's where it, it, it truly excels. Um, uh, and in, the, in the, the sequel, the debt collectors they they do a, an homage to uh, "They Live." That's really quite good. The, the the alleyway fight in "They Live" between Roddy Piper and Keith David, and that's a pretty good scene. Um, uh, but like for instance, in the the first debt collector, there's a scene in which his partner is trying to intimidate a guy to get some information out of them, and then in the foreground of the shot and in the background of the shot. Scott Atkins is having a full-on brawl. Um, and you're just watching the exposition over here and the fight over here. And it's totally working and it's funny and it's charming. And it, as long as there's no gunfights, the whole thing works. Uh, that stuff's on Netflix. You have movies like Avengement, which uh, Atkins produced um, and is uh, probably his masterpiece since uh, Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Um, and then you have some lesser movies. So the stuff he did for studios like Hard Target 2, um, you, the, the big warning signs for a Scott Atkins movie is if he has an American accent. If he's got an American accent, run away. He can't do it. It prevents his acting, and it always sounds odd in the dubbing. Hard Target 2 is such a waste of time. Uh, it's not any of the directors I named before. It's a studio project, like the low-budget arm of the studio. Um, it just looks cheap. 
um, and they have clearly money to do exp uh, expansive cam work, but they don't know how to do it. The, the geography of the fight scenes never makes any sense. The action stinks. It's a complete waste of time. Um, well, that's pretty interesting because we do have a clip for a movie he was uh, he was supposed to be the star of, uh, but it, because it required an American accent, he he that's probably why he didn't get it. Let's take a look. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> How'd Mr. Rock and Roll Detective boogie his way in here? Anybody? Uh, he uh, discovered the body, sir. Lieutenant Amos, sir. Oh, Fairlane, please confess. I'll do the execution myself. Nice tie, Lieutenant Anus, sir. Are you calling me an asshole, asshole? I'm calling you an anus, anus, but if you prefer... You think you're so hot because you get in all the clubs, huh? Just because you have sex with great-looking women. You think you're so hot just because you broke the Ensenada tape piracy ring. You gotta admit, those are all pretty good reasons. Get the fuck out of here, jerk off. Jerk off? You're a jerk off. That's what I think of you. No, that's what I call you because you are a jerk off. Jerk off. Get the fuck out of here. Now, now, you see, that requires a very American accent. Yeah, I could delicate. See how he couldn't <laughs> now, I will give you this. Uh, Ed, Ed O'Neill has one moment where he starts singing booty time. Booty time. Booty time. <laughs> which, hey, hey. which is amusing. But everything about that scene is so hip and arch and obnoxious that, that I wish they would have, like when I was a, uh, you had a call-in show last week and I, I called in, we talked about Ford Fairland and how I wish the movie were either worse or better. Uh, and it never <laughs> can decide if it's a parody or a straight action movie. And it, so it ends up kind of being neither. Um, uh, I find I find that movie eminently frustrating. <laughs> I want it to be good, but but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's. I would just like to go on record and saying I think it's the it's uh, head of Citizen Kane for sure. Godfather, Godfather Two. I think it's ahead. It's ahead of it in that it came out after. I'll say that <laughs> chronologically, it's ahead in that it came out after those films. That's true. Um. So, uh, as I said, you hear you hear Atkins with an American accent. Skip it, even if he shows up in Ford Fairlane too. Even if they do a direct to video sequel to Ford Fairlane, <laughs> and he's playing Ford Fairlane, forget it. Um, even if he's wearing the uh, finger gloves, uh, whatever fingerless, whatever that that thing. Um, uh, even if his phone number is one eight hundred unbelievable, I don't I don't care. Don't don't listen to Scott Atkins. Um, but so after Universal Soldier, reckon he becomes a better actor. Like over time, he starts to get better because he has more to do. So these other films like the deck collectors, like Avengement, he's like stretching and he's playing totally different characters. Um, as I said, Avengement's on Netflix. It is great. It's a nearly perfect B movie. There are very few perfect B movies in the world. There's hard target. There's maniac cop two, and maybe Avengement might be another one. Um, Evil dead Two, reanimator, something like that. Those, there's not a very big pot of perfect B movies, but those, those are some of them. Um, but the one I sent you a clip for is, uh, 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 accident man which is his riff on wanted um wherein you know he's a killer who who uh gets things to look like accidents so they can get the insurance so it doesn't look like a murder etc uh, right. or it looks like suicide and um uh assassins are given various targets based on these sort of loosely defined uh contracts and they all meet at a bar afterwards run by uh ray stevenson and the very sleazy david pamer and the movie is way better than you think it would be um and it's one of those, like, is this a good movie? And I think it is. I think it reaches past the, is this garbage with good fights in it and actually becomes a good movie. In fact, there's a, 
excellent flashback for about 20 minutes that you'd normally delete out of a movie like this. But so this is a fight uh, with where he's fighting Michael J. White, who he'd worked with in Undisputed 2, and another guy. Um, and this is just sort of a piece of it, but go ahead. And go home and watch some goddamn cartoons. Yeah. I don't think the odds are in your favor anyway. Just like they went for that fucking dice. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that one. That's much more realistic, yeah. Yeah, um, it seemed to me they were speeding up and slowing down in that. Clip. Yeah, they're using what's called a speed ramp there, in which they slow and speed. Up. That's yeah. not to, to that's not to fool you into thinking it's going faster. But no. that's, you know, that's a style choice. That, that magical effect of hanging in the air while you. <laughs> yes, no, it doesn't. But certain, but he's doing the the fights, and he's obviously had the ACL surgery since you know since 2011 versus when he did that movie in 2018. Um, a lot of these movies, uh, and Accident Man is like is like fun, and it has some huge laughs, um, and that big that that flashback that it works, and it's a mean and nasty movie, and it's very enjoyable. It rarely flags in energy. Um, there is a one se- a sound effect laugh that may be the funniest thing I've seen in a long time, and I'm not going to ruin it. I think you should just watch the movie. A lot of these movies are on Netflix or Amazon, but you can't find them in the theater even even before we had no theaters. Um, I just, you know, enjoy them and remember that there are occasional diamonds in the rough, but you have to do your research um, and don't think that straight to streaming and uh, and VOD is a bad word. Um, uh, and uh, speaking of streaming, you can find my, the film that I wrote, produced and directed, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, a viral pandemic horror comedy. I on wish Kaza. we had the link. Put well, the link. We, can, we can put it in another time. Cosm, K-O-S-M. Uh, and you get 10% off. You can either watch, uh, you can either get the subscription service, you can rent the movie, or you can get the deluxe version, which includes my audio commentary and several deleted scenes along with having the movie. Uh, yeah, use the co- promo code Don't Kill Me uh, to get 10% off. Uh, it, go, go ahead. Is sorry. Andrew Dice Clay in that movie? Andrew Dice Clay is not in it. I cut him out. Um, I thought that uh, he was uh, overplaying a little bit, and I did not believe uh, that he was sincere in the jokes that he was making. Wow. And I only believe uh, from my old website, a regrettable loan to sincerity. I believe you got to be sincere in what you're doing. 
Otherwise, yeah. what's the point? I and could. I believe that uh, Andrew Dice Clay is not sincere. Uh, I wish he would go back to Andrew Clay Silverstein, perhaps. Silverstein. <laughs> yes, that's his real name, Andrew Clay I Silverstein. I thought it but yeah, Silverstein, that's it. <laughs> so uh, on that note, what did you – see, I know you you had a hard time with the OCD, but how did you take to Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning as a movie, not maybe just as a martial arts movie? Um, it was way darker than than something I would uh, choose for myself. Absolutely. You know, I, I – tend to um not want to uh go into dark places and you know i i, I don't watch horror movies <laughs> i never did uh for some reason they spooked me out it's one of those ones that would probably stick with me if i if i uh watched it with a more serious eye and and but i was kind of like just focusing on the fight scenes and all that stuff uh and it did seem to me it for as it started off very um you know, militaristic, military, more military fighting than uh, than than necessary martial arts. The thing that bugged me right from the start with the movie is uh, the cliche um, treatment of how we 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 visualize traumatic flashbacks and tra- traumatic memory. And I think directors have still not come away come up with a better idea of that. Just flash to some really ridiculous horrific scene like the kid with the half half head blown off saying daddy and all that kind of stuff it's just with the the blood coming from yeah yeah it's just like you know what why can't why haven't we thought of a better way to portray that to be fair i think the movie explains that by having all of the memories be false and they're just movie they're just someone's idea of what that should look like to motivate you since the whole point is that it's based on false memory and they confront them and they say you know this didn't work when when it was motivated by country we had to go by emotion right yeah i think the movie does get away with that because it's explaining that they're not even real right and it was very disturbing. The, mo- the movie overall is disturbing. The part where uh, Dolph Lundgren is kind of hypnotizing him after he gave him like some truth serum drug or whatever he gave him there. Uh, that that was kind of creepy to me. It's like, you know what? I, I can't watch this. I'm going to have nightmares over this shit. <laughs> so there you go. Matt recommends it as an excellent horror movie, which it is. And as a martial arts film, the fights are excellent. Um and uh, but if you are an epileptic, I wouldn't watch it. There's a lot. Of yeah, trauma. yeah, all that flashing definitely. Uh, I thought I thought that too. Like you know, uh, if I had a, a problem with seizures, this would definitely. Yeah. Do they if give you me that kind of it, warning? Yeah, well, they should. I warned you before I sent it to you. I said, if you're an epileptic, don't watch this movie. Yeah, I'll yeah, pick yeah. something else. Um, but yeah, so that's probably the best of the Scott Adkins things. But the recent stuff is available, as is you know most of most of his movies on Amazon and Netflix and wherever else you need to buy your. Your things go by. Uh, Drive is coming out uh, a couple weeks. I think they said May 11th. MVD Entertainment is putting it out. So uh, yeah, get that and and go watch. Wait, wait, don't kill me as well. And I highly recommend uh, if you can find a VHS of Ford Fair, for Adventures of Ford Fairlane, the Rock and Roll Detective. Um, but why not get the DVD, which has Rennie Harlan's commentary on it? I didn't even know it was on DVD. I, I, I have it, it on. I have it on DVD. Wow, it came out way before there was DVD, and I'm surprised they wasted money. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is a studio film. It is put out by Fox. Uh, there was some issue with that. I mean, not to kind of prolong this discussion, but there was some issue. I I know. Uh, I saw. I think uh, Dice Clay on Artie Lang's podcast years ago, where he was talking about when he went to uh, to go to the premiere, they were already boycotting the premiere. <laughs> I mean, sure, but I mean, maybe they were boycotting it to draw attention to what is 
kind yeah. of a ha- I would I would argue kind of a half-assed movie most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a cinematic treasure. It's it's uh Look, it Madu- gave us it gave us Die Hard 2 because that's what happened is Ronnie Harlan makes Fort Fairlane, it's in the can and they're like, "Hey, you want to make Die Hard 2?" and they hurry up and make Die Hard 2 and it ends up coming out before Ford Fairlane. Wow, I did not know that. But I just think uh, it, it's probably the gold standard of American cinema, in my view. I mean, it, it, you just don't get a better film. I know uh, Adam would probably d- disagree with me on that, but I, I think the I think I think our disagreement is that I wish the movie were were a little bit more committed to the joke, in right. which you could play as satire or something, or play as a straight thriller if you want to do it that way. Right? Was that Russell Brand in as the at the? Musician? I, I don't believe. I don't believe. No, I don't believe Russell Brand is in. Who who's the? I thought he was. I thought it was a very young Russell Brand, the guy who's the singer in the studio that he's making fun of when he goes in there. And he, <laughs> I thought it might have been Russell Brand. No, I mean you know that era is like the same. What the year after the Deadpool with uh, with uh, the last Dirty Harry movie, and then the 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 oh, yeah. uh, the metal singer is played by Jim Carrey singing "Welcome to the Jungle" in that one. Um, <laughs> well before Jim Carrey was even famous or even on In Living Color, I don't think. I think it's like right. eighty nine, eighty eight. Uh, but uh, anyway, I think we're we're good. We've gone over two hours, and I talked yeah, yeah. a huge amount. And and I I hope you at least had a good time with Drive. Or oh yeah, and, definitely yeah. did. Yeah, but I thought I felt like it was kind of a ripoff of, and, and I thought it was a little bit not a little bit very uh, racist in the way you know. It kind of just. Like, I mean, the buddy cop, the, the the you know the buddy genre is gonna is gonna do that. I mean, you know that's. No, the way the way, but basically the way they uh, uh, typecast the black guy as the the goofy talkative comedian, you know, in the Eddie Murphy, like it's almost like yeah, the uh, you know Sambo jokes, you know, they were all all the I same. I, I don't know if it's that bad, and they do get him some comeuppance when when race is used against him at the end with yeah, the whip. Yeah, right. So I think I think it it suits it. I'm not going to pretend that the movie is all that progressive because because it's not. But yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for for a good time in a martial arts movie, you could do a lot worse. No, I definitely had a few laughs and and appreciate some of the humor in it. And uh, mm-hmm. I thought the girl was pretty cool. I uh, I took it more of a uh, like a put up of Marissa Tomei, but I could see the Miss Piggy stuff in that. But yeah, uh, I I enjoyed that. Um, just you know. It's, Again, it's not something I would probably go and do on my own, but I enjoyed. I, um, I said right from the start, martial arts movies were never my thing. I mean, I would go to Bruce Lee and not watch the movie until there was something worth watching. It was usually a little funny part of it where mm-hmm. uh, I remember Enter the Dragon. I think it was where he said, "Why do you kill my teacher? Why, 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 why?" why? And it just got even why as he was punching the guy, and we were, you know. 17 years old and, and, and stoned and thinking that was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> that's what I, I got out of martial that's arts. Totally, that's totally allowed. I, yeah. I, if, if you're going to get into that stuff, well, because I was going to say, like the, the really good stuff that I grew up on is the Jet Li uh, wire food, the Wuxa stuff. Oh, yeah. Like the, the Legend of Feng Sayuk and Tai Chi Master. Um, yeah. None of the American movies he made are really any good, but um, you know, the Once Upon a Time in China 2. Uh, and three, and the, I guess maybe the first one, um, but yeah, all that stuff is. But but that may not be your style, where where they're really flying around and jumping all over the place, and you know, you know, hiding the wires. Right. That, that may not be your thing. That's kind of like more magical. Well, you know. well, so, folks, we we certainly hope you enjoyed this analysis of these two films, and we'll be back next month with uh, Paul Blarth Mall Cop Two. <laughs> no, uh, we're gonna do the third one. I'm gonna I'm gonna write the whole thing. We're gonna shoot it, and. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Hopefully it'll be ready. And, and check the description for the link to Adam's uh, Adam's film where you can get 10% off with uh, the coupon code and all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. All right, so that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow uh, I have a psychic with me. Her name is Corby Mitlead. Mitlead. Sorry to mispronounce that. Corby Mitlead. She is a uh, a... One of the United States, USA's most famous psychic is how she's built. So we'll, we'll, we'll see about that tomorrow. And then uh, don't have a show Friday and Saturday night. I'll be here with a uh, Julia Scotty, who is a uh, trans uh, woman comedian. So that should be an interesting program. So until then, I'm at Napa for the Mind Dog TV podcast. That's Adam Lippy over there. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now.